I don't want them to have an incentive to recommend product A or strategy A over product or strategy B. I want them to get paid the same and, and do what's in my best interest. I'm not saying that you know they're always going to be taken advantage of. You know, maybe you have somebody that you know is truly a good person, but you know when you have those incentives, it, it does tend to guide behavior over time. Welcome to Retire Smarter with Kevin Krosky. Find answers to your toughest questions and get educated about the financial world. It's time to retire smarter. It's time for another edition of Retire Smarter. Walter Sorholt here alongside Kevin Krosky, President and Wealth Advisor at True Wealth Design, serving you throughout Northeast Ohio, Southwest Florida, and the greater Pittsburgh area. You can find us online at truewealthdesign.com and click the Are We Right For You button to schedule a 15-minute call with an experienced financial advisor on the True Wealth team. Kevin, great to be with you once again. How's uh, life treating you down in Florida? Walter, it's always my pleasure, and uh, life is good. My, uh, my, I'm looking at a, a picture of myself. Um, my seven-year-old drew it. <laughs> it's just, and, oh, okay, I was going to say it. So you just keep a nice framed yeah, picture of yourself. No, I, I, not... I, I commissioned a, a painting of myself. No, I, uh, my seven-year-old brought it home from school yesterday, and, I mean, it's, it, it just looks hilarious. He's you know, I'm bald, um, so it wasn't maybe a difficult you know, figurine to draw, but um, <laughs> this may be before your time, but... Um, do you remember Mr. Bill, or have you seen Mr. Bill from Saturday Night Live? Mr. Bill, yeah. Mr. Bill. So I, I kind of look like Mr. Bill <laughs> in the picture, but thankfully I didn't get squashed like Mr. Bill often did. So, um, so it's it's pretty funny looking. I guess oh, I'm pretty funny looking, Mr. Bill. Hey, well, Mr. Bill wasn't uh, you know a full stick figure, so there was a little bit of uh, shaping happening there with with Mr. Bill, and so it sounds like there's some advancement. You know, I was still I'm still at stick figures in my drawings, so. <laughs> sounds yeah. sounds like she's ahead of the curve even at 7. There you go. There you go. I found it fascinating. I've got uh, a niece and nephew. Um I think uh, I guess the niece is probably approaching the 5-6 year old mark and then the uh, nephew a little bit behind her, but it was interesting learning about how and I guess through large amounts of data collection, they have a really good expectation for where your child should be at different ages and how their drawings develop year by year. So like it's a sign if they're drawing fingers on the hands of their drawings and those kinds of things that like they've advanced to a little bit different level and that they're developing these other senses and better observatory skills and translating that to paper. And so the more detailed the paintings become, you know, it should translate to certain ages, uh, paintings and drawings uh, as they, you know, develop and get older. Well, that was kind of fascinating, just kind of, I never really thought about connecting those dots between the advancement of the drawings and, you know, where people, okay, by about five, you should start seeing fingers or whatever the case is, you know, as they get older. Yeah. And then by 10, if you see the fingers coming back off the hand, <laughs> warning, warning. They're, they're reverting. Warning. <laughs> yeah. I was, my mind was going, uh, so in, in our hometown in, in Ohio, um, you know, that's the same town where Jeffrey Dahmer is from. So unfortunately that's where my mind diverted but if you see a lot of red you know in in the pictures that are being made and body parts are kind of missing yeah probably uh, a go. little bit of alert that's a bit of a bit of a left turn yeah yes so i'm sorry beware <laughs> well very good um hopefully that doesn't uh, start cropping up in the pictures and and it will um so that's great nothing beats kids kids art though it's uh it's too good um I, still one of the funniest things i've ever seen in my entire life 
Um, I don't know if you probably got this on the internet years and years ago, back in the early days of the internet before social media and all that. Um, somebody sent us a website one year of a guy making fun of children's art, and it it was just the f- it was just the most hilarious thing I think I've ever read. It was just the commentary on the kids' art, like just kind of breaking down their artwork and their choices. It was just it was just too good. Uh, I'll, I need to scour the internet see if I can find that again. I'm sure it's been done a hundred times over since then, but it's just too funny. We have a friend. Um, they ha- I don't know who the artist is. Apparently, it's pretty expensive art, but it looks like kids' uh, paintings, um, kids' drawings. But then there's like a really kind of um, satirical saying. So uh, like one of them, it, it's it's titled "One Night Stand." But then there's just a single nightstand <laughs> that's <laughs> nice. in the picture. And, and there's all kinds of ones that are a little bit more racy than that. But it's um, it, it's funny. So whenever we take the kids over there, they kind of look at it and we're just thankful that they can't. Although my seven-year-old is reading sentences now, I still don't think she will get you know some of the, uh, the language. But we might not be getting them over there <laughs> pretty soon <laughs> ever yet. <laughs> Well, too good. We're glad all is well in your world, and we've got a great show on tap today talking about questions to ask a financial advisor, and this sort of piggybacks Kevin off of our conversation on the last episode when we had Tyler Emmerich from your team join us to share a little bit about his professional journey, and uh, I think we uncovered some really neat things both about his background and your background and how you got to where you are today at True Wealth Design, and a natural evolution of that is to let's explore a little bit further what it looks like to interview a prospective financial advisor or maybe even one that you're currently working with? You got it. And kind of the, um, you know, if I go back and the whole preface of this, and I'll kind of use an analogy that I used in the last one, but it, there was some years ago, there was a story that uh, the fish that was being sold in supermarkets, you know, throughout the U.S. was was mislabeled, um, intentionally mislabeled, so called deceptive marketing. And rather than getting red snapper, you were getting, you know, tilefish porgy or something called a gold banded jobfish. And I looked up um, a picture of the gold banded jobfish, by the way. It's not too far off of Red Snapper from a look standpoint. <laughs> okay, that's good. Um, but part of the issue is, you know, so one, I mean, it's, it's more profitable um, that they were doing this. They were substituting cheaper fish. Two, it was uh, potentially harmful to some people because, you know, this fish had different, you know, food allergens and had a little bit more heavy metals, which could certainly cause some issues for people. Um, and, you know, whenever people go out and try to, you know, if they have some retirement planning problems, they need to solve some investment problems, some tax problems, you know, they're going out to seek advice. And, you know, it's, there's this big information asymmetry between the people that are providing the service and the people that are seeking, you know, to, to get the help. And, you know, it's not uncommon that, you know, financial planning, you know, firm or whatever they call themselves, A, B, and C all look the same, but could be very, very different. So, you know, if you listen to the interview that we did with Tyler, I mean, Tyler had been at, you know, a few very large firms that everybody would be very familiar with. Um, and, uh, he just kind of talked about his journey, kind of what he knew and what he didn't know. And, where we closed was it was really difficult for Tyler, who is an exceptional uh, person with his intellect, his drive, his passion for this, to really tell some of the differences, even after he'd been in the industry for 10 years. I mean, he kind of had a, had a, I would say more than an inkling, but it was still fairly difficult. He kind of didn't know what he didn't know, even after all that time spent 
studying, learning, working uh, in the profession. So if it's challenging for someone as exceptional as Tyler, I mean, I can only imagine what it may f must feel like for somebody else that's you know coming into our conference room or having a conversation with us or with another advisor uh, and picking one of those people. It's the analogy that I often use, Walter, is you know, it's like if you if you need to have surgery and, you know, you can read all you want online, you're not going to have, you know, the the years of training, of school, of fellowship, of board certification, of multiple surgeries that the surgeon's going to have. So in a sense, you want to be maybe a little bit informed, but, you know, really you just want, you, you got to put your trust in somebody. And so you want to try to make a good decision about the person that you're trusting, you know, that they are competent that they are trustworthy. And so, you know, the the last podcast I think is very helpful just to give a little bit more kind of inside baseball, uh, kind of pull back the curtains a little bit um, about, you know, what it's like to become a financial advisor and what the training programs or lack thereof are like and, you know, some of the incentives that are there. Um, and I, what I did was just kind of pulled off some questions that I think would be good to ask uh, whether it's your current or a potential financial advisor, and uh, I'll, I'll kind of go through them today. So we don't have to do any kind of David Letterman countdown, but we can just kind of dive in and see where the conversation goes. I think that sounds like a plan, and I love the concept. We just went through this hiring a uh, a contractor to help us work on our kitchen, and it was, although on a different scale, kind of similar. I, I, I don't know everything there is to know about remodeling this kitchen. I know I know a little bit about it, um, you know, from having, you know, burst a couple of pipes from doing some bathroom work and, you know, breaking toilets and, you know, all sorts of different little, uh, you know, household excursions. It's given me enough armor to kind of understand some of the questions I need to ask, but I'm really just looking for someone I can trust to tell me what I don't know or not even have to tell me what I don't know, just take care of the things once they get in the thick of it to make the right choices and the right decisions. I'm really hiring the, I don't want you to teach me how to do the kitchen. I'm trusting you to execute it. And I just need to make sure I find that right contractor through meeting with a couple of different people. And, uh, but I'm, I'm sure the questions are a little bit more important and in depth when we're talking about your life savings and the, you know, financial and retirement side. Yeah, no, I mean, you, you get it. I think any service provider, there's always this information asymmetry. We had an issue with our garage door recently. It was only like two years old uh, and not the door itself, but the, um, the motor, uh, what have you, the operator. And uh, I was just, you know, I was just talking with a guy a little bit and, you know, it came up that he'd been doing this for 35 years and, you know, he obviously knew what he was doing after 35 years. And so I asked him, you know, you know what are my options here? And he gave me a couple and I'm like, well, how, you know, I just could discern the price difference. I didn't, couldn't tell anything further than that. I'm like, and then I just asked, I'm like, well, if it was your garage, what would you do? And then, and then he said, well, you, you're not going to like the answer. I'm like, well, what's the answer? And, and basically he said, well, you know, this manufacturer is actually, you know, it's kind of builder grade. It's not good. I mean, I would just spend a little bit more money and replace, you know, both of them because you, know, you have two garages. And uh, I said, well, that, what's that going to cost? And it was a few hundred dollars more. But, you know, I mean, the guy's been there for 35 years. Um, he didn't even give me that option up front. I kind of had to pull it out of him. I'm like, well, let's just do it right. And, you know, it's worth a couple hundred dollars just to do it right. We're going to be here. And, you know, I trust you. And you didn't try to sell this to me the way I kind of elicited the information. So I felt pretty good about the decision. It's a great point. So what's uh, question number one? All right. Um, so question number one, and, and I apologize, it's uh, kind of uses a legal term, but it, it's important. And so question number one is, are you a fiduciary legally acting in my best interest 100% of the time? Um, and it's, it's key. You, you don't say just, are you a fiduciary? Um, 
our profession is is intentionally confusing uh, because um, large firms will use uh, their deep pockets to lobby. Uh, so certain roles are, are constructed certain ways, and uh, maybe they're not subject to certain regulations, but things are really kind of uh, in the gray, if you will, and they can make a lot of money in the gray. Simply put, a fiduciary is somebody that has to legally um, place uh, their in your interest before their own. If you are a trustee for a trust, um, if you are an attorney, if you're a doctor, you know you're and you have that, that patient relationship. If you have that client relationship, you're you're acting as a fiduciary on behalf of your client. You have to do what's legally in their best interest. You would think that that would be a requirement. Um, it's not in the U.S. Uh, when it comes to financial advising. If you go to the U.K., if you go to Australia, it is. But uh, with our lobbying system here, it's just not that way. Um, so if you are a registered investment advisor or RIA for short, you are required um, to act as a fiduciary for your clients. Um, here's where it gets a little tricky. Um, some people can, they call it kind of wearing two hats. So they may be dual registered as an RIA and under a broker dealer. Um, and basically they are kind of exempted from being a fiduciary if when they're wearing that broker dealer hat. And I can virtually guarantee that anybody that, that has this type of advisor, you know, that is kind of dual registered, which is pretty common, very common as a matter of fact, um, you know, that, that it never comes up like, okay, Mr. and Mrs. Jones, I'm acting as a fiduciary under my RIA hat at the moment. And then, you know, they flip over later in the conversation to sell a product um, and they don't have to uh, necessarily do what's best for them. Um, <laughs> that would make following then, <laughs> advice really easy, right? Yes. Like when I'm wearing the green hat, I'm telling you things that are in your best interest. When I'm wearing the red, eh, right. I may, warning, it may still be in your warning. best interest, but it might not be. So take it with a grain of salt. But, uh, and then you yes, have to switch hats throughout the meeting. <laughs> I may make a little bit of more money on this recommendation. Yeah, that's, that's BS. I, and I hopefully everybody sees it. Thank you for that. I wish it were that way. Um, uh, and, but then, so then you have kind of another type um, where you can be an RIA and they don't have a broker dealer, but um, maybe they're just insurance license and there's, this is kind of a growing portion where, you know, maybe, you know, 50% or 70% of the revenues come from insurance commissions, which, you know, they will say that, uh, it's separate. Maybe there's even like, you know, one company or, you know, you know, one LLC for their RIA and then a separate company for the insurance. And they're still doing both there. So kind of a very similar, um, approach, but, um, those are things that you got to be mindful about. Um, I can speak first person here. We set up True Wealth. I set up True Wealth, you know, more than uh, six, well, 16 years ago or so. Um, and we were always uh, a fiduciary. We were always an RIA. We do provide some insurance services for clients. Um, it's, it's only about like 1% of our revenue per year. It's a very small amount. Candidly, it's really done as a convenience for our clients. So we don't have to kind of send them down the road. Um, and we state, we stated in our disclosure documents that we're still providing the insurance. Um, as a fiduciary. So we, we don't have to do that, but um, I think it's good that we do that. I mean, I would want that if I was sitting on the other side of the table. Uh, we disclose commissions on those things. Um, our advisors don't get paid commissions on insurance products uh, that they provide for clients. So it, it's really there for clients. Um, 
and insurance, unfortunately, still a commissionable product. It's it's getting better. It's getting cleaner. But, you know, it, you know, clients still need it from time to time, particularly if they're younger and working and have kids. But, you know, when you get in retirement, maybe not so much. So that 100% of the time, are you fiduciary legally acting in my best interest? 100% of the time is important. And then that's, if they say yes, ask them to put it in writing. Again, it's it's in our uh, agreements that way, um, but don't just kind of stand behind the words, but get them to put it in writing for you. I think it's very, very important. I think the uh, fiduciary word and concept is fantastic, but those loopholes are, are big gaps if they're not addressed and, and taken head on. And I don't know of a whole lot of people that like to tackle that head on because it takes that little explanation that we just went through. And um, you know, I, I appreciate you, you know, being willing to kind of open that, not can of worms, but to uh, kind of just peel back the curtain a little bit to understand that nuance behind the scenes. Yes, absolutely. So kind of somewhat related to the first question. The second one is, how do you get paid? And I think the key thing to matter uh, to remember here is incentives matter. Um, so I pulled off, you know, just kind of a couple um, disclosures uh, available online. So um I mean, this is just on their public website. So this is Morgan Stanley. It says, your financial advisor's compensation is based primarily on the fees and commissions that you pay us. Different products have different compensation structures. And accordingly, our financial advisors get paid more or less depending on the product or service you choose. So, Walter, when I hear that, I'm like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it feels a little slimy, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a disclosure. It's out there. I mean, they, they kind of have to do it, which is, you know, I'm glad it's it's phrased that way. But, you know, I, I don't I don't know about you, but if I sit down, I just I don't want that person, that advisor, I use that term maybe a little loosely here. I don't want them to have an incentive to recommend product A or strategy A over product or strategy B. I want them to get paid the same and, and do what's in my best interest. You know, if you have those incentives, I'm not saying that, you know, they're always going to be taken advantage of. You know, maybe you have somebody that, you know, is truly a good person, but, you know, they're, you know, when you have those incentives, it, it does tend to guide behavior over time. Um, we're, we're human. It's going to impact our decision making when, when those incentives exist. I mean, back to the kitchen example. Hey, I need a new dishwasher along with this kitchen reno. Uh, should I get the Bosch or the Samsung? And they're getting a hundred extra dollars kickback if they recommend the Samsung. How many times are they recommending the Bosch? Do you think? Oh, absolutely. And you know, I'll take it a step further. There's some firms where. Um, so here's another one. Uh, and again, if anybody wants to see this document, I have a copy of it. But um, the CFP board came out in 2000. It was June of 2020. Basically, anybody who is a CFP had to um, meet some additional criteria as in terms of being a fiduciary and and uh, mit, uh, disclosing material conflicts of interest and, and things like that and it was it was a little bit short I, I would say of um, you know maybe where it should have been um, what the CFP board came up with but it was it was a, certainly a step in the right direction um, but Northwestern Mutual has I don't know if they still use it but there's a copy of this that was kind of circulating it was an eight-page disclosure document that came out in response to this and uh, I'll just kind of you know read you a little tidbit here. So from the document, um, and I'll, I'll quote this. You know, it was under my commitment to you as a CFP professional. So this was uh, basically somebody that works at Northwestern Mutual, uh, who is an agent of Northwestern Mutual, and who is a CFP. It goes on to say um, that CFP professionals are incentivized to sell Northwestern Mutual insurance products to a client often. 
um, that they have a financial interest in selling permanent life insurance with higher initial premiums than term products, and that they're encouraged to sell more expensive products and services, which will have the effect of increasing the CFP agent's compensation. And it, it goes on and on. I mean, it's an eight-page disclosure document. I mean, it's you know, I, I imagine the, the amount of people that actually read this thing that it's delivered to is probably pretty small. But... Um, but when you hear things like that, um, I mean, it's just it's just not good. I mean, you can still have a good person, but again, those incentives matter. I'm I'm also aware. I don't know if this is still going on, but like when I first came in the industry, like if you were working at maybe not a Northwestern Mutual, there's uh, another company I won't name, but if you didn't sell a certain amount of their um, their own company insurance products, you could sell other companies, but you had to sell at least a certain amount of their own. And if you didn't do that, uh, then you ha- your health insurance was 100% on you. So they basically did not pay for that anymore. And they took away your 401k match. And plus, they paid you more if you sold their products versus somebody else's products. So, you know, those kind of compensation structures are just, I think they're ridiculous. Um, so you have to be mindful of that. So, you know, we talked about in the last question about, you know, kind of being in an RIA or RIA and then a BD and kind of wearing those two hats or maybe RIA and then and then getting insurance commissions. I mean, you know, how you get paid really matters. You know, is it is a fee? Most of the industry uh, on the RIA side, under the fiduciary side, works for an asset management fee. Um, but some firms may only do investment management for that. You know, we do investment management. We do very robust financial planning. We do tax planning and tax preparation, all for that for that one fee. Um, so, you know, you need to understand how somebody's getting paid. Just because somebody makes a commission doesn't mean that it's it's bad or that they're bad, um, but there's more potential for a conflict there that you know that they are selling a product that's with a higher commission that's going to pay them more and give you less. It's even uh, just to take it a step further, Kevin, and maybe this comes up in another question, but not even just on the uh, you know the commission or the fees and the incentive side of things, but it's even a, a question of level of access. Some of the I don't know if manipulation is the right word, but some of the strategy behind the scenes of some of these companies. I shared on the last episode how I you know got my own insurance license just for fun, so I could get a little bit more peek behind the scenes at some of the financial stuff out there. Um, and it was interesting when I then took that next step of like what it would look like to get contracted with various companies out there. I quickly learned that with one particular company, and I'm sure it's the same in other structures as well, I couldn't even get access to certain products to sell to a potential client that may have would have been totally better for them, better rates, better return, less costs and fees and all those kinds of things. But I couldn't get access to sell that unless I sold X amount of this company's lower level products that had the higher commissions and fees and those, you know, I couldn't get access to the, whatever it was, the gold plan or the gold product to be able to sell. So right off the bat, I'm meeting with someone across the table from me. I would have to either ignore, you know, tell them, Hey, now technically since I'm kind of a new guy, you know, I can't sell you this really good thing over here that this company has. You you can only choose from this very limited menu or I have to immediately hide that from the person I'm meeting with and not tell them that, hey, you could have access if you went to somebody more seasoned. Uh, you could have access to this, you know, this this gold plan or whatever the thing was called. I mean, right there, I was just like, this is insane. <laughs> this doesn't yes. make doesn't make any sense. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I, I, that, I haven't heard of that. I did get an email uh, yesterday from, and I try to filter all these out so they don't even end up in my inbox, but one made it through the filtering system and uh, basically it was like high commissions on indexed annuities uh, earn up to, I think it was like 8.5 or 8.75%. And, um, you know, we've, we've done past podcasts talking about some of the issues with annuities, but, um, just for comparison purposes, you know, if we looked at our last quarterly billing and our, our fees are right on the website, we have a, a page under who we are and it says, you know, kind of our difference, our firm, our fees and our team, but you can go see that information right there if you're interested. But if you add up, you know, kind of that asset management fee for you know, all the work that we do and you look at the fees and kind of divide it by the total assets, it's less than 1%. Uh, that clients on average pay us, you know, per year, you know, compare that to the insurance salesperson that's making more than 8% on a sale. Um, and then, you know, they're not incentivized to go ahead and, and service that person. You know, they're incentivized to go out and get another new sale for, you know, 8% plus commission. You know, whereas if we're, if we have a client, you know, we have to work probably eight years to make a similar amount of money. And, uh, there's no like back end surrender fees or anything like that. If we're not doing a good job or if they're not, if our client's not happy for any reason, you know, they shouldn't be a client anymore and they terminate the relationship. Now that doesn't happen very often, but you know, that's, I think you look at it, you know, less than 1% versus, you know, more than 8% up front in year one. I mean, just a huge difference. Is that one of your nine questions today? You know, can I fire you or what happens if I'm not happy and want to end the relationship? Because that seems like that'd be an important one to add. Uh, no, but hey, you know, uh, round numbers Bo- are good. Bonus, so bonus you just <laughs> bonus question to ten. Um, yeah, I mean, for for some of these products, particularly the annuities, um, or there's some commissionable products that you can get uh, if if a client is working with a broker dealer advisor. Um, you know, there could be kind of lockup periods or back end surrender charges or other kind of junk fees that you know, candidly, you could be stuck. You know, certainly we don't have any of that stuff, but um, it's good to ask that question for sure. So how do you get paid? You know, how much will I be paying? You know, or, you know, how do I terminate? We'll kind of all lump that together. Sounds like a plan. All right. Two good ones, Dan. So question number three. So what are your qualifications? Um, so, you know, we talked about, you know, kind of Tyler and um, just, you know, just how do you pick somebody who's, who's hopefully going to be trustworthy um, and how it was difficult for even somebody is knowledgeable and is smart and is experienced. He had more than a decade of experience, you know, kind of how do you actually, you know, he was making a decision three years ago when he joined us about how do I pick the right firm, you know, to spend my career with. And it's, it's still challenging because there's a lot that he didn't know. Um, so it's difficult here too, and even more so for a consumer to pick uh, an advisor. So I would say a bare minimum, you know, find a CFP, um, CFPs are about 30% of the industry. Um, certified financial planner is, is what CFP stands for. And, and the key thing here is, you know, it's, it's a minimum competency. It doesn't mean it's, it's a gold standard or anything. It, it, to me, it means you're minimally competent to call yourself a professional. You know, if you have a doctor, you know, hopefully <laughs> you don't want a doctor that has some medical school, right? You don't see that. <laughs> I don't actually have my license, but I have some medical school. So I, yeah, I could take great care of a you. A few years completed. <laughs> <laughs> a few years, you know. Um, but, you know, you want a doctor and, and you know, all doctors aren't, aren't, aren't the same. There's some that are more exceptional than others or attorneys or what have you. But, you know, if I'm choosing a doctor, I want somebody that uh, you know, not only is a doctor, but, you know, maybe has gone on for additional training in, in, in their fellowship. You know, they are board certified, you know, they're continuing to learn and, and, and 
you know, see what's kind of being innovated within the space, but knowing kind of, you know, what is currently working and what have you and, and somebody that can communicate too. Um, you know, those things, if you have a, at least a CFP, I think that's a good starting point. Um, but again, it's, it's, it, to me, it's a bare minimum. I think you also need to have some people that, you know, that they have experience in solving problems like those that you have. So most of the clients that, that come to us tend to come to us, you know, in their fifties or so, uh, when they get really serious about retirement and, you know, they've been earning money and saving it. And, uh, we've, become really good over the years at helping them kind of pull it all together, get a really clear plan for retirement, um, help manage those transitions, get their assets aligned well to support the lifestyle that they want and make sure that they get on track and stay on track. And, um, you know, there's a lot of people that, you know, may do a little bit of this, do a little bit of that, but you want somebody that has that, that firsthand experience in, in solving those problems and kind of guiding you through life's transitions. I mean, a lot of those, um, a lot of those decisions that you're going to have to make are irrevocable. You kind of, you don't get a do-over necessarily. So you want to make sure that you get them done right. Life uh, changes very quickly, both as individuals and the financial landscape can change on a dime. And so I think that's important that you guys kind of embrace this philosophy of always learning, always trying to innovate or at least understand what's happening in the world around you. So you don't view your education or your qualifications as a, okay, once I get it, I've got it. You kind of subscribe to that same mentality of, you know, the the doctor profession or, you know, my, my dad works in pest control and he's going to conferences um, and trainings every three or four months trying to learn about, you know, the best ways to always be fighting termites or this new bug is kind of cropping up in the state and we, here's how to combat it and stay ahead of the curve and what are the best practices on capturing this animal now and just always trying to stay ahead of the curve. You could still do things the way it was done 25 years ago. But how much better will, you know, his clients be served, um, you know, by his advanced knowledge? And so I think if, in any industry, the fact that you, that's an important thing to embrace that continuing education, always getting better, always striving for something more. And I thought Tyler hit that beautifully where he's like, I, I probably will never get to where I'm the nine out of 10 on the, on the, on the egghead scale, right? <laughs> of of uh, financial knowledge. But if I'm always striving for it, then, then I'm doing well. Yeah. And somewhat related to this too is, um, you know, when you're a financial advisor, I mean, we have to be generalists in, in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, we have to deal with uh, investments, uh, with taxes, uh, with, you know, kind of retirement planning and all the um, things that fall under there from Medicare, Social Security, you know, uh, life expectancy. I mean, it's, it's, you really have to be pretty broad, I think, to be a good advisor, but then you may have some areas that you specialize in and, and go much deeper. And then, you know, if we can have some, you know, different key people, you know, like you know, my, myself, I prefer to focus in a couple areas. Tyler has passion for a couple other areas, you know, that way, you know, I, I, as a generalist, I know like, Hey, you know, I got this, but you know, if it gets a little bit deeper, I may need to pull Tyler in on this just so we can put our heads together and get the best result for the client. So I think that's really important to know. I mean, you get some people that are just kind of really, I would say, cookie cutter. And, um, you know, you really need to have kind of that broad uh, understanding because all most of these things are interrelated. Um, you know, it's not just about tax or you're not just going to go to an estate attorney. I mean, all these different things, you know, sometimes you'll hear quarterback. Um, it's kind of overused, which is why I don't like using it so much. But, 
Um, you really do need to, I'll give you a, an example. So I was talking with a new client yesterday. They're looking to move from California to Florida. They're retiring in their late fifties, um, mid late fifties. They got, uh, their lenders telling them, you know, one thing about, you know, Hey, how are they going to, they're not going to qualify necessarily because this is going to be a second home. And, you know, um, the husband's business was down a little bit last year because of COVID and, and oh, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? And if we actually wait to when we retire, um, the wife is a teacher, uh, then, you know, we're not going to have that income. So we're not going to be able to qualify. And I was able to walk them through. I'm like, well, that's, those are all valid concerns, but they're not really relevant. And here's how we're going to be able to maneuver through that. So I was able to take my knowledge about, you know, how the retirement accounts work. And, you know, I have a fair amount of lending knowledge. And this is something that we help with clients all the time. I'm like, we're going to be able to do this with your 403B and we're going to take these distributions and it's going to count, you know, as income. And it's got to stay in the 403B because you're only 57. And if you roll this over to an IRA, you're going to get a 10% penalty on distribution. But if you leave it there because you're over 55 and separated from service, you're going to be fine. And, you know, I, I talked through this and some people are probably feeling like right now, like, holy, holy egghead alert. <laughs> but I was able to pull all that information and synthesize it. And this client had a real life problem. Like, how, how are we going to solve this? Um, so, you know, you have to have that that depth uh, as well as the breadth. Um, the breath is really important, but then you're going to go deeper in certain areas. Um, lending is an area that I'm strong in. I'm really strong in individual income tax, really strong in retirement planning. Um, you know, Tyler's really, really strong in investments. He's really good at cash flow, and he continues to build up his knowledge in some of the other areas. Uh, so, you know, collectively, you know, when you put that together and you have a few key people that are, you know, have a lot of experience in those areas, you can solve a lot of problems to make sure that, you know, you're identifying the issues or the opportunities that somebody has and then making smart decisions to capitalize or avoid them. All right, Kevin, good so far. We've talked about, you know, being fiduciary 100% of the way fiduciary with some of those caveats in there, how you get paid qualifications. What's another item on the list? Sure. Um, so, you know, I'll kind of use the surgeon example again, but if you're going in for surgery, um, you know, you kind of want, you want to know what to expect, right? You want to have uh, that surgeon that has uh, experience and has a plan for how they're going to do their surgery. You don't want somebody to say, well, I don't know, I'm going to cut you open, but we'll figure it out when we get in there. That to me, that just doesn't sound too reassuring. So you need to have a planning process. You need to have, um, you know, this is kind of the tried and true method that we go through and, and handle situations like yours. You know, we've we've done a whole podcast episode on uh, something called our Retire Smarter Solution. And uh, basically, we just kind of looked at the work that we always have to do for a new client that's coming in and getting serious about retirement and wants to make sure that they're making the most of what they have and, and managing those life transitions. And, you know, we put this one pager together just to help make it more concrete for people to see what that process is, you know, to partly demonstrate that, hey, we've been here before and we've done this and we've done it successfully and we can help you too. And, and here are the steps that we need to take in that process. You know, it's not like you're buying a car where you can go and test drive it and you can look under the hood or, you know, whatever it is. You're kind of buying an intangible service. You're buying somebody's experience and knowledge and wisdom. And I think, you know, having that process and, and, and being able to demonstrate how you're going to help them to me is really, really key. I think that's important. Um, and we've talked about process on so many episodes of Retire Smarter. Um, I can't pick just one to send people back to listen to, Kevin, because it's been pretty pervasive throughout all of our conversations. But just underline and uh, put that one in bold for sure. 
You got it. Yeah. The, um, the process matters more than outcomes. Outcomes, you can get some weird results in, in kind of the short term or medium term, but if you have a good process, the results tend to take care of themselves over time. So, um, absolutely. Um, so the next question, what's your investment philosophy? So this one, it may sound a little wonky, um, but I, I, I left it on here. I think it's important, not just because, you know, this is what I do for a living, but, um, you know, when you, there's different ways. So let's just say that you went through this planning process and you have this beautifully constructed financial plan. Now you're going to have to implement it. And inevitably that's going to be, there's going to be some investment decisions that you're going to have to make to hopefully tie back those investments and align them with you know, your retirement plan. There's different ways to do that. You know, some people may believe in kind of, you know, just going out and picking 10 stocks or and some people um, may just go and pick a, a certain basket of mutual funds. But, you know, really, how are they kind of getting to those recommendations? There is a certain investment philosophy that uh, that people, uh, your advisor has, or you should have if you're doing this, you know, yourself. And you should be very clear on what that is. And, and again, for us, it's 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 more of a science based process. We believe in deep diversification, want to keep costs low, and stay very tax efficient. That's a very kind of high level piece to it. Um, you know, there's a little bit more to it, but uh, you know, we, we've talked about kind of our investment process in prior prior episodes. If you want to go back and listen. Um, but if you, I've had experiences when people are sitting in our, our conference room, you know, prospective client and the meetings, you know, seemingly uh, going pretty well, at least from my perspective. And then, you know, I, and I'll ask them something like this when I, maybe they have a question or, you know, what have you done investing wise? You know, what's worked well, what hasn't? Um, I'll also ask them, you know, what kind of, you know, return do you expect? Just had a conversation like this about two weeks ago and uh, the gentleman, very successful younger guy, just sold business for, you know, a very large dollar amount. And he said, well, you know, I'd, I'd expect about 10% per year. And Walter, you know, when you hear that 10%, you probably are saying like, well, hey, that's what everybody says because that's what the historical average is for the U.S. market. <laughs> but that average like almost never happens. There's always more ups and downs. And we've talked about this, um, you know, over the course of the last couple of years, but your prices have gotten a lot, of, a lot higher for many, many assets. And, and I told him, I said, look, and he was introduced to me, you know, by uh, by a current client. Um, so he was referred to us. But I said, look, you know, I think you really got to temper those expectations. You know, even if you're you know an all equity investor, um, there's a lot of asset prices that are pretty high now, which means that you know they're probably not going to be able to get those sorts of returns with any reasonable confidence, you know, moving forward for a period of time. I'm still not saying it's always going to be that way, but I think it's partly the market that we're in. Certainly some assets are priced a little bit more favorably, but, um, but if that's really what he was expecting and, and that's, if that's all that he was, you know, really going to go for candidly, we would have been a good fit to work together because I'm not going to blow smoke. And, um, you know, I also caution him that, you know, if you are talking to people, there's certainly people out there that will go ahead and, um, portend that they can deliver that for you. And, um, and usually you're going to end up, you know, pretty disappointed with that. Um, I had another situation where, Clients were, or prospective clients were very conservative. You know, you could tell that from the things that they were telling me from how they were currently allocated. And I said, well, you know, what kind of return do you expect? And, and they said 6%. And I said, you know, your interest rates are you know, near zero today. And, um, you know, so if you're investing in those kinds of securities, um, bonds and, and things like that, I mean, it's, 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 I don't know how you can get to 6%. And, um, and I kind of walked them through that similarly. Uh, to what I just described. And they said, well, yeah, I guess that's one way to look at it, but you know, you can always get higher returns. <laughs> I'm like, 
okay, um, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say that we're not a good fit. Basically it's kind of what we came to, but you need to have, um, I think reasonable expectations. And as going back to the question, you need to have that uh, investment philosophy or that investment process that is consistent. Most of our clients, they've never thought about, well, what's my investment philosophy? Maybe they read about index investing or something like that, but this is tends to be more of a, a financial advisor thing. Um, but I think it is still really important that the client understands what the process is and then what expectations that they should have. You know, they, it's possible to be disappointed with the outcome. Um, you know, nobody likes it when markets go down, but inevitably they will. But you shouldn't necessarily be surprised by the outcome. And I think that's an important distinction. But there's a lot of different ways to implement. I think you have to make sure that you find something that is consistent with your own beliefs. And if you don't have those beliefs, we have a lot of clients that have been open to being educated. um, And we'll just kind of walk them through kind of the science-based evidence as far as what we believe and why and, you know, what we're doing for them. And that's proved to be very successful over the years. You can see how all these questions start to go hand in hand and, um, you know, build off of one another to give you a a more, you know, a deeper understanding of who you're going to be working with or who you are working with if you're currently working with a financial advisor. And, um, you know, these these things are kind of peeling back the, the layers of that onion to learn a little bit more about the person and the company that you're interacting with. A uh, couple more questions on that list, Kevin. Yeah, we just got a, a couple more here. So, um, so how many clients do you have? Uh, so, this is an important one because uh, I think it gets into relationship expectations. I had a you know, get together with another financial advisor friend last week, and good guy. Uh, and, and I asked him, I was like, "How many clients do you have these days?" And um, <laughs> and at first he said, oh, a like hundred or 200, <laughs> like that, which was a pretty big variance in my mind. I'm like, that's a pretty big range. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, well, no, you mentioned it. I don't really know. I'm like, well, you know, when we spoke a few years ago, you told me you had like five or 600. He's like, well, you know, I have a hundred to 200 that I see regularly, but then I have these other people that, you know, and I, he's got 400 I, customers, <laughs> customers, yes. <laughs> Client versus customer. There you go. Um, uh, and amen to that. And it's, um, so if you have somebody like that, it doesn't mean I, I this is a good person. I, I, I like this guy a lot. I mean, he cares, but pragmatically, you know, he can't, can't really spend a lot of time with, you know, <laughs> five or 600 people. Um, Tyler talked about the same thing in the last episode when he was at kind of a large firm. He had about 500 plus clients. Uh, so what you'll commonly see, you know, and it kind of depends, you know, if you have like uber wealthy people that have really complex problems, you know, maybe you have, you know, 40 clients or something, you know, if you have um, a, a lot of like clients that we serve, you know, a lot of them, everybody's unique, has their own, you know, you got to make sure you understand the person, but a lot of the problems are pretty similar. And we've been able to build efficient processes to make sure that we can solve those problems and make sure that they stay on track. So, you know, you can have, you know, 100 or 150 clients, again, depending on complexity and what have you. And, um, and also, I mean, some people just work faster than others. I don't know about you, Walter, but when I was going through school, I was always like the first or second person that was done with the test. And um, yet I always performed well. I didn't need all the time, you know, to go back and double check and do this and that. And, and I just didn't do it. I was just able to work more efficiently than some other people. Not that there's anything wrong with kind of being slower and, and maybe trying to be more you know, precise, but it wasn't something that I needed to do to be precise and get the right answer. Yeah, I, I can't identify with that. I was probably always one of the last ones to turn in my test because, and this is no joke, I used to like to commentate and broadcast in my head 
um, the final results of the test. So I would look at how many A's and how many B's and C's and D's there were and tally them up. And then I would do kind of a post-game show in my head of who <laughs> who won, A, B, C, or D. And, and I would look at like who maybe had a rally toward the – I would go and look about halfway through and see who was leading at the halftime of the test and then who was making a run at the end and who became the MVP. And then sometimes I would say, wow, uh, C rattled off five victories in a row there about three-quarters of the way through the test. <laughs> Hmm, maybe we should go back and look at those because that seems suspicious that there'd be five straight C answers. That is an interesting look into, inside the mind of Walter Sorrell. And I thank you for that. I think on behalf of all the listeners, that was pretty cool. I was actually a relatively good test taker, but um, I, I would take a little extra time to then broadcast the uh, the tests. So yeah, I, I was never in a rush to turn mine in. I was in a rush to finish so that I had time to then do the broadcasting. <laughs> Very cool. So uh, after the how many clients do you have, uh, how will our relationship work? So this is, again, kind of you know, not only having proper expectations as far as kind of the investment process, and, and, but also proper expectations about the relationship. You know, how many times are we going to meet? What's the communication going to look like? Am I going to be meeting with you? Or, you know, is there more of a team service model? And what does that look like? I mean, these are all really important questions. We the basic principle, candidly, in operating a service business is you, know, you got to meet or exceed the expectations. And if you do that, you tell people what you're going to do and then you do it. They tend to be pretty happy um, because they signed up knowing what you told them. And then you actually do what you told them. And that tends to get uh, some pretty good satisfaction. But, you know, we certainly do that. We reach out proactively. We have, you know, a couple of different service models that we can work with clients under. So we just don't have to work with, you know, uber wealthy people. We can work with people that have, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars and still serve them well. Uh, and, and, you know, everything works out uh, between everybody, you know, for the clients that have a little bit more complex needs and we need to do a little bit more tax planning, things like that. You know, we reach out, you know, an additional time um, proactively and do that fourth quarter work for them. And we're always here if a question or concern comes up in between those those meetings that, that we set and proactively reach out for. So I think you have to set those relationship expectations, you know, who's doing what, you know, what frequency, you know, what have you, or um, candidly, if I go back to my buddy that, you know, had five or 600 I don't want to say clients, but, you know, some clients and a lot of customers or Tyler had a lot of customers, it's all reactive. And, you know, people actually have to reach out, which uh, in my experience, I don't think it's necessarily a good way to have a relationship. But also, if you do it that way, the downside of that is, you know, the person, you know, the, the client or the customer, depending on how they're being served, you know, has to really self-identify when there's a need, uh, which kind of defeats the purpose. It's, uh, uh, you know, take the flip side. It's like even when you feel healthy, you should still go into the medical doctor and get your physical. You should still get the diagnostics test run because you may be able to identify something where, you know, now that you have it identified and maybe identified earlier, your treatment options are probably going to be much better to resolve the issue than if it just went undiagnosed for a while. So, you know, you need to have that relationship. You need to understand the person. But I think a good advisor can ask some questions where though there may be a problem or opportunity that the client didn't know that they had, but we can identify it and then we can work to go ahead and capitalize or avoid it. I just find it really interesting that the uh, kind of entire tail end of your list here of questions to ask an advisor all really revolved around expectations. That's that's pretty telling. 
Yeah, no, that's, that's a, it's a good observation. Um, I think it's really important. Um, you know, the, the process is certainly important, but the process kind of, you know, helps explain uh, expectations. We had a, a an eggheady podcast a couple, um, you know, months ago talking about standard deviation. And, and, and I mentioned I hadn't used that phrase in a meeting for, I don't know, probably more than a decade once I actually learned that that was something you shouldn't say in a client meeting. But it really helped kind of inform um, some expectations as far as, you know, the variability of your investment returns over time. So I would talk about the variability of investment returns and help set those expectations, but I wouldn't use the wonky term standard deviation. But, um, you know, some of our Retire Smarter listenership, I think, appreciates that. So we will intermix it in this longer format that we have here. But but you're right, Walter. I mean, expectations are are really important. Um, I was waiting a, a, a contract recently from somebody and he told me I'd have it on Friday. And this was Friday four, more than four weeks ago. And I just got it um, you know, yesterday. And I'm like, wow. One, I got it. I had already written the guy off. And now here it came back. And I mean, candidly, you know, that's, not a good, that's not a good thing. I mean, the contract involves me investing a fair amount of money you know, through the service contract. And I don't feel very good about you know, trusting this person with that, those dollars now. Um, so if you set those expectations, one, I, yeah. You have to, if you have uh, somebody with unreasonable expectations, then, you know, they're not a good fit for us. We, we're not going to be able to meet those. Um, but if we have reasonable expectations, then we, we will do our very best to go ahead and meet those. And, and we will proactively, you know, reach out to do it over time. But I think the expectations are, are definitely key to this for sure. That's very important. Very true, Kevin. Any uh, final questions that we haven't covered yet to ask a financial you, advisor? Yeah, two quick ones. Okay. Um, so, uh, you know, if you're working with somebody, you know, kind of new, will you, here's the question, will you require me to sell all of my investments to work with you? So, um, you know, if, if all of your money's in an IRA account and, you know, there's no tax consequence in, in reallocating, you know, certainly you're hiring the advisor, you want them to buy what they think is best for you and you don't want them to get paid any more or less to recommend any, you know, product A, B, or C. Um, you just want them to do what's in your best interest. But if you have, you know, maybe you have a joint account with your spouse or a trust account and you have some mutual funds that have grown in value or stocks that have grown in value and you're going to take a big tax bite to go ahead and sell out of those. Well, I can tell you what we do in those situations, we evaluate the tax cost versus, you know, kind of the opportunity cost of staying in that investment. And we have several clients where we just call it kind of a substitute or legacy security. And we're holding it maybe for maybe forever, depending on depending on what we see in the investment and the tax consequence, but maybe for a period of time when they're in a lower tax year and we can more tax efficiently get out of the investment. Um, there are, I would say that we're kind of in the minority of doing it that way. Certainly it adds some complexity to the work that we do on behalf of clients, but most firms will just require you to sell out of everything and then start fresh with them. And that could cost you a lot of money if you have money in those taxable accounts. And then lastly, um, who's your custodian? Uh, so custodians are really important. Um, you know, I'll kind of use Bernie Madoff here. Everybody's heard of him, but he did not have a custodian. A custodian is like Schwab, TD Ameritrade, um, Pershing. These are all you know global financial institutions or large financial institutions uh, that are really kind of um, it's like a, your checkbook register. This analogy is it's kind of going away. I don't know who balances their checkbook anymore, Walter, but <laughs> I know there's some people that are listening that still do. But they tell you kind of what went in and what went out and how much you have. That's what the custodian does. They're the safekeeper of your assets. Bernie Madoff, on the other hand, did not have a custodian. He just had Bernie Madoff's piggy bank, and we all know how that played out. 
So, you know, whether it's Schwab, TD Ameritrade, Fidelity, Pershing, they're all, you know, very large financial financial institutions. When you work with an advisor, you're just giving that advisor basically uh, limited authority to go ahead and buy and sell securities on your behalf, as well as to debit their, their advisory fee from your account. Um, really nothing more than that. So it's important that, you know, the advisor, it's, it's a requirement. It's not important. It's a requirement that they have a custodian and preferably, you know, a large one. We work with all of those, Schwab, TD, and Pershing, um, so certain custodians are better for certain clients for certain reasons. But it's kind of a, a commodity at the same time, too. You just want some you know, big, very safe financial institution that's going to hold your money and isn't going to go out of business. Yeah, it's, uh, that's it. That's a big one. Uh, the, that was a lot, Kevin. A lot of important topics on the show today. Walter, I must confess, I thought this was going to be you know, kind of a normal podcast episode. And uh, though I'm not keeping track of time, it I know it extended. So hopefully it's been helpful. You know, some of the stories, again, we started this whole kind of series here, just helping people understand, you know, really how to hire a financial advisor, how, you know, some of the differences between financial advisors, making sure that you're, you're not getting the gold banded job fish, but you're getting the red snapper or whatever it is that you're hoping, you know, and, and trying to buy. Um, but there's a lot that goes into it, but hopefully, you know, whether, you know, you're, you're looking for an advisor, whether, you know, you're a client of true wealth, or you know you have your own advisor all these things matter um they matter a great deal you know us being inside of the industry and knowing these things we can see why these things matter we have stories behind why they matter some of them we've shared through this you know these last couple episodes but it is really important it's a, it's a tough decision but you know there are good advisors that are out there um, that are, are trustworthy, that are competent, um, that do have clear uh, incentive structures or uh, compensation methods, I should say, that are fiduciaries for you. But um, you really need to kind of go through and, and go through a good thinking process and interview process to find them. So hopefully this is helpful in that regard. I think it definitely is. My, my big takeaway really is just this is important and there's a lot of layers and there are so many different people that call themselves a financial professional and just grasp through the last stories that we shared on the previous episode and through some of the things we explored this episode that there's a dramatic difference um, from advisor to advisor and firm to firm in the way that they do business, the way that they make money, um, you know, what those fees and commissions look like, the processes that they use and the expectations that they set understand that there are those great differences. And so just take the time and attention to research, interview, um, and do that due diligence. It's your life savings that we're ultimately really talking about in uh, in most cases that you're going to be investing and saving as you prepare for your retirement and financial future. Um, so do that due diligence, do the research. Um, don't just go with the well, this person seems nice, uh, so we'll work with them. <laughs> dig a little, dig a little deeper. I think is the encouragement from today's show, and it, it's probably not a message that the uh, you know the retire smarter crew that listens into each episode here, Kevin, needs to hear because they're doing their due diligence by listening to this show and this podcast and getting to know you a little bit more. But maybe they can share this episode with somebody who um, you know is thinking of working with an advisor or is working with an advisor who doesn't go to these depths and these levels to make sure that their clients are taken care of. And if it can be helpful in that way, um, please share it with anybody who might benefit from hearing this way and these questions to ask to uh, a financial advisor to dig a little bit deeper. Uh, if you have any questions for Kevin and the team at True Wealth Design, it's very easy to get in touch. You can call 855 855- TWD plan. That's 
7526 or go online to truewealthdesign.com and click on the Are We Right For You button to schedule a 15-minute call with the experienced financial advisor on the True Wealth team and to start a conversation about some of these questions plus more. Kevin, thanks for the help. And I know it was a long episode, but packed full of good stuff. And we'll look forward to another one with you soon. Thank you, Walter. All right, take care. That's Kevin Krosky. I'm Walter Storholt. We'll talk to you next time right back here on Retire Smarter. Information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Information is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accurateness and completeness cannot be guaranteed. All performance reference is historical and not an indication of future results. Benchmark indices are hypothetical and do not include any investment fees.